part of my message, but uh, we'll get there uh, eventually. I want to thank God for this opportunity that God gave me to share the word with you. I wanted to speak today about a God who provides for his people, a God who works miracles for his children, and a God who comes to visit us in the weakest moments. And I wanted to speak to you from the prophet Elijah. Let's read a verse from 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. Thank you. Someone can read it in Malayalam as well. Thank you. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you will minister to us from this passage. I pray for your anointing so that I can minister the word. The people are yours. The word is yours. We pray that you will bless us together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Even though I read the first verse, I'm going to speak from chapter 17, 18, and 19. Because chapter 17 is the introduction and preparation of Elijah. 18 is when Elijah carries out what he's going to do, what God asked him to do, and chapter 19 is the aftermath. Hallelujah. To, re to really understand the words that we read, we have to get some historical context. You have to get some idea of history. The kingdom of Israel is at the height of its prosperity and glory under the time of Solomon and David. But when the time of Rehoboam comes, we see that the kingdom of Israel is split into two. The southern kingdom of Judah, which comprises Judah and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom of Israel, which is made up of ten tribes. And as God promised David, descendants of David ruled Judah all the way until their captivity in Babylon. But there's no such continuity in Israel. Jeroboam, for selfish reasons, he introduced the worship of calves, of idols, into Israel. He did that because he thought that if, if children of Israel went to Jerusalem, they might want to one day reunite and he might lose his title. So he introduced idol worship into their midst. But we see that his dream doesn't last long. His son comes on the throne, but he is killed off. Actually, his entire family is killed off. And there's no such continuity in the, in the kings of Israel. But there's one common thread that united all the kings of Israel, 19 of them, and that was they all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's not one. Maybe Jehu was mixed, but there was not one that did right in the eyes of the Lord. And we see that a king would reign, and then sometimes his son would come, but most often there was overthrows and coups and murders, and somebody else would reign. There was no qualification to reign in Israel. And at that time, Ahab's father, also because of an overthrow, comes as king. And upon his death, Ahab comes to reign in Israel. And there's one distinction Ahab has in the Bible. And that is, he was more wicked than any of the other kings before him. And not only was he evil in his ways, he did what was forbidden. He went and married a heathen woman named Jezebel, the, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. And we see that he served Baal and Asherah, which were two idols. Actually, those were idols belonging to Jezebel. And he built a temple for Baal in Samaria. And we see the kingdom of Israel, which was a God's kingdom, God's people, is now have a temple of Baal, an idol, right in their midst, and they're worshiping him. And Jezebel undertakes a campaign to rid Israel of the true God. There's no coexistence with Israel gods, or Israelite, the, the God of Israel. Rather, she's trying to stamp out the worship 
of the living God from among the people of Israel. There's idolatry, there's moral degradation, there's spiritual back breakdown, and that's when Elijah utters this statement, this judgment. And there's no introduction for Elijah. Usually when, when they introduce a prophet, we see that he'll say, it's from such and such town, such and such tribe, the son of such and such, there's nothing about Elijah. All it says is Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbite. It's like saying Samson the New Hyde Parker from New Hyde Park. It doesn't really say anything. There's no, there's no introduction. There's no personal information about him. There's no qualifications listed. But we know that Elijah did as God asked him to do. Challenging the king was not an easy task. He could have lost his life. But he was bold. He went to the king and he did as God told him to do. You know, oftentimes when we want to do something for God, we're always hampered by thinking that we don't have the ability, the qualifications, the background. But what God is really looking for is an obedient heart and someone who is filled with the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. Obedience to the will of God and anointing from the Spirit of God is the primary requirement. I'm not saying qualifications and degrees are not needed. They're necessary. But the primary requirement in front of God is an obedient heart. A heart that's willing to do what God asks him to do. What matters is not who you are. What really matters is who your God is and what he can do through you. Hallelujah. And so we see Elijah, he comes up. And he makes a statement to the king. It's a judgment. He says, there's not going to be any rain or dew upon Israel until I say so. Now, this is significant because Ahab now, as I've mentioned before, worships Baal. And Baal is a powerful god, according to them. He's a god of increase, of fertility. He's the one that gave rain to produce crops. You know, his statue shows him holding a thunderbolt. So he's the god of the storms. So when Elijah is really saying that there's not going to be any rain, he's really challenging Baal. And we think that Baal was challenged three years, three and a half years after in Carmel. No, it started that first day with Elijah telling Ahab there's not going to be any rain. And maybe Ahab didn't pay much attention you know, to Elijah. Moses had told them that if you create idols in your midst, there's going to be curses upon the land. But nothing had happened so far. And here's this man from obscurity, a man who's a nobody, that coming and telling him that, Baal's main power was not going to work. Ahab didn't pay him any mind. You know, many times we are warned from the, the word of God. When we walk in the wrong ways, when we do the wrong things, the spirit of God, the word of God warns us. But at times we ignore it because we haven't seen any consequence yet. We wait for the consequence to come. We wait for the stick to come before we change our ways. But we forget that God in his infinite mercy is allowing us another chance to repent, to get right with God. Hallelujah. So Ahab does what he has to do, and he goes and hides at Kerith. God tells him to go hide in the Kerith ravine. And God provides for him there. There's a famine in the land. You know, there's, there's a drought. But God provides for him through the brook, and, and the ravens bring him food. And when that runs out, he goes to the widow at Zarephath. And that's a spiritual truth here. When God tells you to do something, he's going to make sure he provides for you. He doesn't make you fend for yourself. Hallelujah. If he has a task for you, he has a provision for you. Hallelujah. So God wasn't going to let Elijah go and be by himself. But the one thing that's interesting here is God tells Elijah, go, the provision is waiting where I tell you to go. You know, most often when we want to do something, we say, God, give it to me so I can go. You know, we're uncertain. We don't want to take that step of faith. But God is saying, the provision is at the destination. Go, and it's already there. So Elijah goes. And he hides at credit. And, you know, God provides for him. And as I said in the beginning, we have a God that provides for his people. Hallelujah. After three and a half years are up, God tells him to go back to Ahab. And he comes back. 
And we know the events that take place. The prophets of Baal are called together. But right before that, Elijah asked the children of Israel, why are you running in these ways of idolatry? Why are you walking in these ways? Can't you walk in the ways of God? But we see, I think it's in 1 Kings 18, uh, verse 7, if I'm not mistaken. But don't read that. <laughs> I'm not sure about it. Uh, that he says, but the people are silent. They don't want, they're, they're set in the ways of idolatry. Even though they're under judgment for three and a half years, there's a drought going on, and Elijah's asking them to change their ways. They still don't want to change it. They're happy with the way they are. So Elijah goes to his next plan, and that is to demonstrate the power of God to the people of God. And the, and the prophets of Baal get together, and Elijah gets together, and both of them are going to have a sacrifice. But the key is that the fire of God has to come down from heaven. And we see the prophets of Baal, they prepare the sacrifice. From morning till evening, they run around the, the sacrificial altar. They cut themselves. They dance around, but nothing happens. And Elijah mocks them. He says, hey, maybe your God is sleeping. Call louder to wake him up. Maybe he's on the way. He's in traffic. Maybe he'll cry louder and he'll come. Or maybe he's thinking. He's indecisive. He doesn't know what to do. He's confused. You know, whenever I read that passage, I read past it thinking Elijah was just being funny. But as I read it this time, I realized he was making a difference between the God of Israel and Baal. It may be Baal sleeping, but the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Maybe Baal's on his way, but the God of Israel fills the heavens and the earth. He's everywhere at all times. Maybe Baal is indecisive. He's thinking he doesn't know what to do. But our God, he knows the ending before the beginning. And not only does he know his own way, he knows your way, and he can lead you in the path of righteousness. Hallelujah. So he, you know, he mocks them, but nothing happens there. And at the appointed time, it says in the evening, he, he brings the children of Israel together. And he builds up the altar. The same one that Jezebel and her people have broken down, he builds it back up according to the command. He prepares the sacrifice and he puts it on there. And then we see that he pours about 12 jars of water on it, right? Four jars, three times each. And the last thing somebody who wants to light something would do is soak it in water. But here we see Elijah pours water over it, and he doesn't let it run off. It actually, he builds a trench around it so it stays. Elijah didn't want any accusation of cheating. Because Elijah knew that the fire that was coming was not a natural fire. The natural had to make way for the supernatural. The created elements couldn't function in their purpose. They had to bow before the creator. And he got, Elijah prays, and the fire of God comes down. The manifestation of the power comes down. And we see that when the power of God is manifested, then the people's hearts are changed. There's a transformation. Their zealousness returns, and they come back to the living God. Now, the other day, I was speaking to a non-Pentecostal friend of mine, and we're, I was telling him, you know, we're thinking about buying this big church. And he was, he was telling me, you know, why? I hear, I hear the Malayali churches are, are dying off. <laughs> he said, the older generation is passing away. The younger generation is going to other churches, and there's no new believers. So it's all subtraction. You know, it ends in zero. And I, I thought about it a lot, and uh, I thought, and the reasons he said was, you know, there's language issues, there's uh, outlook differences, but the main thing was he said is our doctrine of separation is from another age. It's not, it's not for this age. And I thought about it, and I thought, do we have to uproot or plow up our foundational doctrines and beliefs in order for the church to grow? But when I was reading this passage, it became clear to me. What's needed for the church to grow, to increase, 
is the manifestation of the power of God in the church. Hallelujah. And I came to this conclusion because, you know, I was like uh, Justice was saying, I thought about the early church in Kerala. When the men of God came speaking the gospel, you know, people said, this is not going to work. You know, they're, they're set in their ways. There's hundreds of years of customs and traditions here. You're talking about family against community. Nobody's going to leave all that and come. And if you tell them, you know, stay as you are, but just call on this new God, maybe somebody would have come. But now you're saying, leave everything behind and come. Nobody's going to do that. But the men of God prayed, and the power of God was manifested there. There was healings. Demons were cast out. There was deliverances, and people of God came. Many people forsaking what they held dear came to worship the Lord. When we look at Acts, we see the same thing. The apostles with power anointing went forth, signs and wonders. And the power of God was manifested through them, and people were added to the church. So that encouraged me a lot. And these are not stories. Many of you sitting here are witnesses to this. Many of your parents were recipients of this. So I'm not saying a story here. You know, our church has a lot of services to cater to the outside community, to the members, in-reach and outreach. Sunday school, youth fellowship, Awana. And I hope that as you're working in them, you'll pray that God, let the power of God be manifested in them. That people will be added to the church. As I'm working in the youth ministry, as I'm working in the Sunday school, let the power of God be manifested through me that I can be effective. That, I can, that the church can thrive and grow. Psalms 11 says, when the foundations are destroyed, what does the righteous do? There's a God in heaven. Let's pray that, that God will manifest his power in our midst. Hallelujah. So after, you know, the great service on Mount Carmel, Jezebel gets word of it, and she sends word that she's going to kill Elijah. He's going to take his life. And the man of God gets depressed, afraid. He runs away. And he's sleeping under that broom tree. You know, he wants God to take his life. He doesn't want it to be at the hands of Jezebel. And we see the angel of the Lord comes taps him and tells him eat bread and water gives him a second time he sleeps again. he eats and sleeps and he comes a second time and says eat there's a big journey ahead of you and we see that with that bread and water those two meals he walks 40 days and 40 nights I've heard of five hour energy but this 40 day energy I've never heard of he, a month and a half he walked with two meals and he reaches the mountain of God and he's, you know, he's, in the, he's in Mount Horeb, and he's in, in, in a cave. And it's interesting how God deals with Elijah. You know, first, a large wind comes through, tears the rocks. Then an earthquake comes, and it shakes the mountain. And then a fire comes, but God is not in any of those. And then comes a gentle whisper. And it's only one thing that God wants to know. Elijah, what are you doing here? Very gentle voice. What are you doing here? You know, didn't God know? Didn't the angel of the Lord tell him that there's a big journey ahead of him? Didn't God know why he was there? But God was not asking about his physical location. He was addressing his mental situation. It was a soul-searching question. That place of fear, that place of depression and anxiety, what are you doing there? You know, these are thoughts that are natural. It comes to every human. But why are you lingering in them? Why are your actions dictated by those thoughts of fear? What are you doing there? And Elijah, we see, gives a lot of excuses. 
we see uh, God's provision for him, the way he deals with him. You know, I have the same question for the congregation today as to you know, that place of fear and depression and anxiety. Dear brother, what are you doing there? That place of sin and anger. You know, that place of backsliding. Dear sister, what are you doing there? That's not the place for a child of God. It's time to get up and move. God has a plan. You know, as I take the, the Lord's table around, I see there are, there are some that have many, haven't partaken in it in months. And I'm not judging you, but I, I hope that as I, as I speak to you, that you realize that it's one of the most intimate parts of the service. You come to church, you love God, but what are you doing that's preventing you from taking that for months? To set things right and get back to God. Because there's a blessing in it for you. Hallelujah. God is giving you a roadmap. There's a destination that you need to be, and the provision is waiting at that destination. Hallelujah. And, and God ministers to Elijah. He says, hey, the people that threaten you, they're powerful. But your God is more powerful than them. Haven't you seen my provision for you? When you were in Zarephath, when you were by the brook, haven't you seen my provision for you? Haven't you seen my protection? Don't you see the care for my people? Even though they're idolaters and they run away from me, I keep sending them messengers to bring them back. Don't you see my care for them? And even with you, Elijah, as you're hiding in this cave, I come to you. The God of the universe is coming to an individual to speak to him. And I love the way God takes care of Elijah. You know, Elijah's exhausted physically, mentally, spiritually. And God cares for his physical need. He lets him sleep. He gives him bread and water. He cares for his spiritual need. He comes to him to converse with him, to enrich his spirit. And he encourages him mentally. He gives him a road map to go. There's things I want you to do. There's places I want you to go. He strengthens him mentally. All the needs that the man of God has, God takes care of it. You know, he doesn't, God doesn't tell you to do something, and once you're done, he throws you away. He's very interested in the first, from the first to the last. He's going to take care of you. If you're under his will, if you're obedient to his will, he takes care of you from the beginning to the end. Hallelujah. You know, I, as I was thinking about God's provision for us, I was, th I was thinking about the most basic of things, you know, how we're all sitting here today, maybe you're, you or your parents, they came here as immigrants. And we even failed to recognize the provision of God in that, in being immigrants to this country. We think, you know, this, this country was always open to immigrants, and then you take a boat, you came here, and you were, that's it. But that wasn't the case. I was reading about the story of a man, an Indian man, who came here in the 1900s. His name was Vaishno Das Bagai. He came from Punjab. And in 1915, he sold all he had in India, and then he moved to, the, to San Francisco. You know, and at that time, it wasn't the rupee, it was the British pound. So selling everything he had earned him $25,000. And he bought that with him. He came to, to America. He learned the language. He became a naturalized citizen. And with the money he had, he opened a store on Fillmore Street in San Francisco, a general store. And things were going well, and he ended up buying a home in Berkeley, California. But the day he went to move there, the neighbors locked up the house and wouldn't let him enter. They didn't want an Indian in that neighborhood. So he had to go back. He went and lived above his general store. And in 1923, the Supreme Court of the United States said that non-whites could never become naturalized citizens of the United States. And so the natural citizenship that he had gotten, they stripped him off of it. And according to California law, if you're not a naturalized citizen, you can't own property or business. 
So they took away his business as well. So in, at 1928, at the age of 37, having lost everything he worked so hard for, he rented a room and he took his life. Yeah, there was no skill-based immigration. Many of you came here, maybe somebody filed the paperwork for you, your family, so that's family-based immigration. Or you were a nurse and you came here, it's a skill-based immigration. But those things didn't exist back then. In 1965, when the Greeks and Italians were complaining that the quotas that the U.S. had in place was limiting their, their entrance, that's when they removed all those rules. That stroke of the pen opened up doors for us to be here. And we failed to see the provision that God has done in changing the laws of this nation so that we could be here. As you own homes and businesses, you should realize that just 50 years ago, that was impossible in this country. Now you might think I'm, I'm coming to say something about the elections, but I'm not. <laughs> I was just talking about, you know, how God, that's like a simple example, right? We don't even think about it. You know, somebody files the paperwork, you get the paperwork, you go for the interview and you come here. You don't even think about how God has provided for you in that. But God has been good to us. I spoke a lot of things here today, so I'm going to, and my time is up, so I'm going to summarize it. If you want to do something for God, the primary requirement is that you're filled with the Spirit of God and that you're obedient to God's Word. And when we continue in sin and we don't get the punishment, we often think that it's okay and we continue in it. But we fail to realize that God in His infinite mercy is allowing us another chance. If God has a task for you, He has a provision for you. For a church to grow and thrive, to attract new believers, we need the manifestation of the power of God in the church. And in that place of fear and depression, of defeat and disappointment, of sin and backsliding, let me ask you, what are you doing there? God has a rad roadmap for you. He has a task list for you. There's things that he wants you to do. He wants you to move. The enemy has you boxed in. But he wants you to move. He wants you to get out of the cave. He wants to follow that roadmap that he has for you. You know, the God of Elijah is alive today. Maybe it's not the ravens for you. Maybe it's a unique way for you but he's still alive today. And I want to repeat what I started with. We have a God who provides for his people. We have a God who works miracles for his children. And we have a God who comes to us in our weakest moments. May God bless you.